Hi, I'm David Crow, and this is episode 259 of The Infectious Myth. Email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com, crow with an E. Like our page and respond to postings at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth, and join our discussion group at facebook.com slash groups slash theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectiousmyth. Listen Tuesdays at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on prn.fm, or subscribe to the podcast using iTunes or another similar program. You can listen to any of the last five episodes over the phone by dialing the U.S. number 701-719-0990 and following the instructions. You can call prn.fm voicemail, 862-800-6805. If you leave a message, make sure you leave your name, at least your first name, and indicate that the voicemail is for the infectious myth. If you dial either of these numbers, long-distance charges may apply. Well, I will reveal something new to you today, and I'm going to talk about myself uh, for a change. Uh, exactly a week ago, I was uh, diagnosed. Actually, it's not an official diagnosis yet, but I was told that I had a rectal tumor and a uh, that it spread to my liver. So this is automatic definition of stage four cancer. So I'm gonna go through uh, what happened before this diagnosis and what's happened since. It's been a complete whirlwind and I may have forgotten a few things, but I think you might find it interesting. I feel stuck between the worlds of allopathic medicine and alternative medicine there is a lot of information, a lot of claims made on both sides, many of which are not true. But there's also some things that may work, and I obviously want to find what might work for myself. Before June 7th, I was having some what seemed like minor health problems. I had difficulty passing stools. I often wouldn't have a bowel movement until the early afternoon, and I had to push really hard, which was unusual for me. I never really had problems with that. I had less energy, so when I was out climbing mountains with my friends, they noticed that very, very gradually I was getting slower. And, of course, I don't know if that's related to this. Maybe I was just getting lazier. Ironically, in March, um, I joined with some male friends of mine in kind of a weight loss contest and, and I said I'm not going on a diet I'm just gonna eat normally but you know to support you guys I will keep track of my weight and uh, so in the first month I lost two kilos about five pounds and the same in the second month which really started to worry me never in my life had I lost weight before I always wanted to lose a little bit of weight but it didn't seem that it seemed that no matter how much exercise I got or um, how well I ate, my weight slowly crept up as I got older. I was about 225 pounds uh, probably in, in March, uh, or 110 kilos, um, which is a little too much for my size. But I was also quite strong with a lot of muscle, so I wasn't in any way obese. I didn't feel obese. I was able to get around biking, cl hiking, climbing mountains, uh, whatever I wanted to do, I, I could. 
I was never at the top of my class, but I, I think compared to other people of my age, which is 63, I was probably in a reasonably high percentile. I was no couch potato. Around June 1st, I started to notice some edema. First my feet swelled, then my legs, and then my groin area. So my daughter, uh, my middle daughter, came over on Sunday, June 7th, and asked me how I was, and I broke down and told her I was getting pretty worried that my minor symptoms were kind of building up and I was thinking there was something wrong. Uh, she's training as an RN, as a registered nurse, and noticed my edema uh, was getting more serious. And so she persuaded me to go to the emergency department the next day. Not to get treated, but she pointed out that if you want to get tests done, if you're in the hospital, you can get them done in a day or two, whereas if you go to a family doctor, um, they'll order tests. It might take you a week or two to get an appointment. In, I had already done that. In one case, it was two weeks. In one case, it was four weeks to get the first set of tests, and then you go back, and then there's more tests that they need. And so now the process of getting diagnosed with anything turns into a two-month process. So on Monday, we went to emergency. And I, I've got to say, I've never really used the Canadian healthcare system for anything serious before. Uh, I guess due to COVID, there wasn't really a, a lineup, a few people in the emergency department. I was second in line, and I knew that no matter what happened inside the hospital, that I was going to walk away without a bill. I didn't have to worry that two days of tests was going to give me a ten or $20,000 bill. Um, if, if I didn't have insurance, I'd be responsible to pay it myself. And if I did have insurance, I might still be on the hook for fairly significant co-payments or deductibles or whatever. The triage nurse thought she saw yellow in my eyes, and which indicates a potential liver problem. And uh, so pretty soon we got sent to a bed in the emergency department. A doctor f finally showed up. You have to learn to be patient in a hospital. And did an ultrasound. When he looked at me, I knew it was bad news. He said, your liver is very enlarged. It's probably cancer. I was then queued for a CT scan, which confirmed the diagnosis, and also found a rectal tumor. And uh, as far as we know, that's, that's all I have. Every other part of my body seems to be tickety-boo. They tried to find problems with my heart, my kidneys, my lungs, um, but there's not really anything else except these two things, but I, I think that's enough. I'm of two minds about CT scans. I knew that uh, they deliver quite a dose of radiation, but I thought in my circumstances where I'm facing a potential terminal cancer that I don't really need to worry about a uh, CT scan causing a cancer 10 or 20 years in the future. It's more important to be able to have another 10 or 20 years of life at this point. What I didn't know was that CT scans these days inject a contrast agent into your veins, which I knew nothing about. 
They didn't tell me anything about it, but I found out later it was based on iodine. Uh, it, this is nowhere near as bad as um, MRIs. MRIs are relatively non-invasive, so the MRI itself is, is an innocuous test. It's not giving you any radiation. But they inject gadolinium, uh, a metal, into your veins, and some people have horrible reactions to gadolinium, uh, reactions that can be with you for a long time, maybe the rest of your life. So with MRIs, it's, it's really important not to have one unless it's uh, for a s serious diagnosis. I mean, the get same goes for CAT scans. You should never have a CAT scan for something that isn't a, s a serious, a serious health problem. They also did blood work, <coughs> which was normal, except obviously my liver enzymes were all over the place. And I was low on iron, although they didn't specify uh, how low. In, in fact, this kind of communication was uh, a problem during my stay, being given vague information and nothing in writing. <coughs> um, it was pretty obvious that I needed a liver biopsy. Uh, I wasn't sure is what is this going to tell me. They think that it's going to f uh, show that the tumors in my liver came from the rectal area, and that will influence their position on treatment. Now, I, I should point out that I'm in the hospital for tests. That doesn't mean that I'm going to accept every treatment that's thrown at me, but I do want as much information as possible. And a lot of allopathic medical testing tools are very powerful. Some of them, like the HIV test, are fatally flawed. Um, but things like x-rays, CT scans, and MRIs are very powerful. Of course, they do have the side effect that I've, I've mentioned of either radiation or exposure to uh, chemicals that and some people can be quite toxic. Um, so I was sent back to the ward and told I was staying the night, that I couldn't eat after midnight, and that the next day I would have a second CT scan, which was really unfortunate, because that means m more of this stuff injected into my, into my blood, if they had done it all at once, I could have avoided the second injection and a, a liver biopsy. And of course, in a, in a hospital, the time of the patient is the least valuable time there. You just sit there and wait until they decide that they've got, uh, that you're scheduled in for a particular test. They come and get you. They do the test. They send you back. Uh, doctors show up at random intervals. Um, you basically don't know what you're going to be doing from moment to moment, except a little bit before something happens. Another mention of COVID. We arrived the first day that visitors were allowed at a hospital. So my daughter, uh, the one training as an RN, was able to be with me, and she spent a lot of time uh, with me. And this was obviously important emotionally and also because she was also listening to what they were saying. 
And I feel for all the people who during the period of COVID were sent to a hospital by themselves without any support. Uh, the people who shut down the world for COVID didn't think about things like this. They didn't think about the harm they were causing by denying people in hospital visitors, uh, you know, whether it's just for moral support or whether it's to accompany them uh, to tests or listen to the, when the doctors and nurses are talking so that they can ha you can have a second um, analysis of what's being said. Um, there were two visitors allowed, but we uh, managed to sneak in three. Um, my ex came over for a while, and then the following day, uh, my son. So this was mostly for moral support, but it really is important. I'm always been a very independent person, and in the hospital environment, I felt completely different. Um, so on Tuesday, I had another CT scan of my upper chest area because they were worried about um, the cancer having spread maybe to my lungs or something like that. I wasn't quite sure <coughs> why they hadn't got that the first time, but I guess the liver is a little lower than the lungs, so it wasn't going up high enough. I had some residents come in, some surgical residents, to talk to me, but I didn't get a lot of information about them. Palliative care team came in, which was a little bit scary because you think of palliative care as end-of-life care, but uh, apparently they deal with any symptoms. And my most annoying symptom was uh, edema, which they actually never dealt with, although they did talk about um, a diuretic. It was never prescribed until after I left. <coughs> uh, it, it was 2 p.m. before the liver biopsy was actually scheduled, and it last ate at 10 p.m. because I didn't want to stay up till midnight just to eat. So this was quite a long time. Um, I was impressed by the doctor doing the liver biopsy. He was, he was very clear, uh, spoke to me as an adult. He told me that there is uh, a possibility of a, of a serious problem, which is that the needle goes into an artery, causing bleeding in the liver. And if that happens, it is emergency surgery time in order for them to, to stop the bleeding. He told me this is very rare, but it does happen. And I, I felt that this is the kind of information that the patient deserves to have. You deserve to know what, what could happen. Um, he was very clear about what was going to happen during the procedure. They were going to fr freeze my skin, and then they were going to freeze all the way in right to the outer lining of the liver, and that when he touched the liver, he wanted me to not breathe or move in any way because that would end up with a needle scratching the liver, which is bad. Um, so I felt that he, that he was quite competent, and uh, things went exactly as he said. They put a hollow needle in, and then they put a little nano snipper through the needle, and you can hear a snipping noise when it grabs a little bit of 
your liver and pulls it out. Afterwards, you have to lie on your side for two hours because the hole might start to bleed, so they need pressure on the hole. I thought, okay, now at least I can eat. I don't mind eating lying on my side, but the doctor said, no, if we've punctured an artery, we're going to need surgery, so no food for two hours. And then I went up to the ward, which took half an hour by the time they got a porter to carry me up, et cetera, et cetera. And the nurse said, it's two hours from when you arrive. So it was actually 5 p.m. before I could eat uh, a rather soggy sandwich, which is the best thing I've ever eaten in, in my life. My son came to visit um, just after I was able to sit up and have something to eat. So all of a sudden, life was uh, a whole lot better. Hospitals are supposedly healing places, but let me describe my night. There was an unfortunate guy next to me named Wayne who had kidney problems. He was not passing urine through his kidneys properly. And it appears that the, that the um, lack of filtration was affecting his mind. He was going downhill mentally. The nurses had a goal of getting him to urinate, because if they could get urine through his kidney, then they, they might be able to save his kidneys, save him from dialysis and probably from an early death. But Wayne wasn't totally there, but three times during the night, they came in and asked him if he wanted to pee. Two out of three times, he said he didn't feel he had to. One time he did, they took off his diaper, they sat him on the edge of the bed, they tried to get him to pee into a little bowl, but nothing worked. They were incredibly patient and persistent and kind. So I was very impressed, but what it meant to me was three times during the night the lights came on, Wayne was a bit deaf, so they're yelling at him, and so I couldn't uh, sleep at those three times, plus somebody came in to take blood and one of the nurses to take blood pressure. It made me realize that it's very difficult to sleep in a hospital. I don't know how you heal. It's one thing to be there for a short-term procedure, but if you are in a hospital for a long time, <coughs> it, it's not an environment that encourages healing. It's, it's not quiet and calm. Uh, everything is so sterile. You can smell disinfectant everywhere, probably more so now than at any time in the, in the past. So it showed kind of the best and the worst of the modern medical system. The people I felt, like the nurses, were extremely competent, and uh, they treated Wayne with a great deal of respect. It's clear what they wanted, and they didn't get it, and in the morning they had to catheterize, put a catheter in, um, in Wayne, um, which is, is not ideal for many reasons, but they tried their best to avoid it. So luckily on Wednesday, I was able to go home after one visit with a dietitian, which I felt was like the most useless of the communications that I had. The dietitian seemed focused solely on calories, 
you've lost weight, you need more calories. I was, I was tempted to say, so if I get a tub of ice cream or a steak or a smoothie and they all have the same calories, are they equivalent? It seems like the, the, I mean, why do you have to go to university to study to be a dietitian when the only thing you know about is calories? And I was a little worried about my anemia, and I, I suggested that maybe what I should do is eat some raw beefsteak, just slice off a piece, cut it into slices, and eat it to try to boost my anemia. And her only comment was, what about the bacteria? Which, of course, is not a problem if you cut off a piece of meat uh, off a steak. It is a problem if I was to, say, go buy ground beef to boost my iron and eat it raw. That might be um, asking for trouble. But after that, we were able to go home. And then in the afternoon, I had a, a lengthy phone call, Skype, with Luann Panella, a nurse uh, with 40 years experience or something, an oncology nurse who works for Gary Null. And she talked to me a lot about diet. Her perception of an anti-cancer diet is mostly vegetarian, uh, some fish, and also bone broth, uh, specific fruits and vegetables, uh, some carbohydrates like rice and sprouted bread, but no refined carbs like standard bread, no sugar, no alcohol, no coffee, no microwave, floss your teeth every day, and no fluoride in the, in the water. Those are the notes that I took because she said that she would send me detailed notes, which she did just today, and I haven't had a chance to go through them. I've been uh, learning Spanish, and my Spanish teacher told me about a plant called graviola. You can sometimes find the fruits in maybe a Chinese grocery or, or a more, more comprehensive grocery store called soursop. And it has documented anti-cancer effects. She had a bag of the leaves that she'd brought back from Peru. So she gave those to me. And um, I've been drinking this tea. The, the problem with things like tea is that the amount of the anti-cancer agent is going to be relatively small. And it will be digested, and it will be systemic. But the amount that will get to tumors is relatively low. So while it's probably really good for prevention, it might not be uh, so powerful when you have an existing tumor. My second daughter, who I hadn't seen very much over the past few years, our relationship had been a bit strained, came over and uh, we had a two-hour heart-to-heart chat and it was wonderful to see my family coming together. Uh, we'd been through some difficult times due to personal events, which I won't go into, but you can understand how these things happen. And to be able to come together with everybody wanting to help me get through this is really wonderful. And again, I'm blessed. Not everybody has a supportive family at a time like this. It's it's support, plus it's also people to talk to if you have an idea about what you want to do. 
on uh, the next day, I guess Thursday, I phoned um, a, a friend of mine who is in touch with alternative treatments in the Calgary area, and she suggested I talk to Bob, Dr. Bob Dixon. He's a mainstream trained physician in Calgary who is, is very open-minded in his views. Um, he's not wedded to you know, fully allopathic approaches to everything. He's quite open to alternative approaches to cancer in, in, uh, specifically. He's the man I've interviewed before who is fighting water fluoridation in the city of Calgary. So we talked about vitamins, both orally and uh, vitamin C infusions. He was very impressed with the Bollinger's um, series, The Truth About Cancer. Uh, he talked about heat as a way to uh, address the tumors. One of the things um, about cancer cells that um, I've, I've learned talking to people like Peter Duesberg and David Rasnick, who, who believe, who are promoting the aneuploidy theory of cancer that makes a lot of sense. The metabolism of cancer cells is extremely disrupted. So they have a lot of weaknesses, and they are uh, stressed by heat, and they're stressed by other things that we'll, we'll get to. But anyway, he mentioned that there was a Swiss company that uh, was producing a probiotic uh, yogurt that had some anti-cancer potential and mentioned that the chief scientist was Marco Ruggiero. And I said, I know him. He's on the board of Rethinking AIDS. Uh, Rethinking AIDS last had a conference in 2009. Marco and some other Italians came over and gave some wonderful presentations um, on AIDS. So Marco has quite alternative views on HIV and AIDS. I didn't know too much about his views on cancer, but then I thought I need to talk to Marco, so I immediately sent him uh, an email, and he quickly responded and suggested we have a Skype call in a couple of days. I went out on my bike uh, for two hours, and I felt pretty good. It's, it's really important to get exercise. It's something I'm kind of struggling with. Some days I feel really tired, and I think I sleep too much, and I think I need to get out and get some fresh air and exercise, and that might deal with my tiredness better than lying down for nap after nap. Uh, again, my uh, Spanish teacher, Isabel, uh, I, I went over for my weekly lesson, which um, I'll probably stop doing just because I have so little time right now, and I'm trying to conserve my energy, but I'm going to keep going to the end of June anyway. And we read um, a paper in Spanish on a Colombian uh, Amazon tree known as Vismia basifera. It's been used by indigenous people so that we know that it's safe. And in the test tube in a Spanish university, the University of Basque, the Basque University of Spain, they have shown that it kills liver tumor cells in test tubes. And they also showed that it does not kill healthy liver cells. So this is, is obviously much more specific than the graviola, but it is not easy to obtain. So we're uh, in the process of trying 
through some connections my Spanish teacher has in uh, Colombia, Venezuela, places like that, trying to see if we can get some of this so that I can start drinking this tea instead of the graviola. And that night, I got together with my whole family, my two daughters, my son, my ex-wife, and it was the first time in a long time we've had a family gathering like that. The next day is when I talked to Marco Ruggiero. He's uh, an MD. He uh, started in the Italian army. He was, uh, for several years, the head of department in molecular biology at the University of Florence. Uh, he got into a bit of trouble around 2011 when he, he published some papers questioning the HIV AIDS association. And uh, he's now in the United States and he's working with a Swiss company over the development of this probiotic, and things seem to be going well. It seems like they are marketing it as, uh, as a life extension material. I was probably more impressed talking to Marco than anybody else I talked to. The first question he asked me is, how many metastases are there? And I said, I have no idea. I didn't ask the question. It seemed like such an obvious thing to ask. <coughs> he just seemed to know the questions that need to be asked. Um, I'm, I'm going to an oncologist who has the results of the liver biopsy tomorrow, and um, he helped me come up with some really good questions. Now, just because I'm going to an oncologist doesn't mean I'm taking everything they're going to propose, but I'm going to listen and I'm at least going to gather information and then uh, hopefully obtain the uh, full medical records. In some places, they give you your medical records, but in Canada, you have to go to the medical records office and, and obtain them yourself, which I, I don't think is the best system. So still today, I have nothing written. I left the hospital with a single sheet of paper which listed my initial symptoms. Um, and you could almost not tell that I had received a cancer diagnosis, except that there was the uh, business card of an oncologist stapled to the single sheet of paper. Marco asked the question because there is a therapy that injects ethanol through a needle into the metastasized tumor. So if they're accessible, and there's not too many, it is very effective at killing these tumors and is, as you can imagine, almost completely non-toxic. Now, obviously, anybody who sticks a long needle in you, there's the possibility of the needle going in the wrong place. It's not a therapy without any dangers, uh, but compared to systemic chemotherapy, it seems like something that would be worth considering. In some cases, they inject a chemotherapy instead of ethanol, but even so, the quantity of chemotherapy would be dramatically lower than uh, being hooked up to an IV with chemotherapy. Um, like a couple of other people, he was very surprised I hadn't been put on a diuretic, and I actually think that the hospital just forgot. They had mentioned a diuretic, but nobody did anything about it, and my edema was not getting any better. Another thing he said that was important to calm me down a little bit 
was that stage four cancer is just a word. If you have cancer in two sites, it's stage four. That doesn't mean that every stage four cancer has you on the edge of death. And he said that there are many people with stage four cancer who end up dying later of old age. Um, he mentioned his probiotic yogurt. Uh, obviously, I can uh, grow the yogurt. I think they just send the seed culture to you for you to grow it yourself. And he also mentioned that it could be diluted and injected as an enema. And another thing quite a few people had talked about was coffee enemas to help cleanse the liver. Um, so many people are talking about that that I'm, although I'm not uh, that enthusiastic about sticking something up my bum every day, if it is effective, I would certainly do it. And of course, if you ask the mainstream if it's effective, they'll say, absolutely not. It's just crazy talk. Um, but the success of um, the more brutal forms of surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation is not that great either. So uh, I don't want to be on always believing one side or the other. Um, Marco also believed that radiation therapy on my tumor is good. There's no claim that the radiation therapy will kill the tumor, but it will shrink it. And because it's close to my rectum, this will hopefully prevent it from blocking the rectum entirely, which would cause massive health problems. I'd end up with a colostomy bag if that happened. Um, so that would not be good. He said that the radiation will have few side effects, and that sometimes if the tumor shrinks in a, in a certain way, it could become operable. At present, they don't want to operate on the, on the tumor. And, uh, you know, surgery that can remove an entire tumor that's not interconnected with other things could be uh, a good idea. We don't know if that will happen. Uh, Luann Pinella, uh, Gary Null's um, oncology nurse, also said that the radiation can be effective. Um, so pe people don't seem to be terribly dogmatic about this. They, they seem to be open-minded about joining the two words, worlds together. It's, it's not take everything from one side or everything from the other side. On June 14th, I had a conversation with Tom Cowan, who I recently interviewed. And uh, I would just like to say that, that I'm extraordinarily blessed in that I've spent years working as a medical critic, you know, with, with virtually no compensation, m many hours put into criti critiquing the HIV-AIDS model, polio, coronavirus, and um, people have developed obviously some respect for me. I didn't know that Tom Cowan had been reading my stuff for some, for some time. So we had a good talk about, um, you know, what I was thinking about doing, and he said, which didn't really help me, but he thought that either the vegetarian or the pescatarian diet could work, or the, um, the keto diet. 
he his the things he had to um, as important things to consider. One thing I'd never heard of was deuterium depleted water. So the hydrogen in um, in most hydrogen atoms in water have a single uh, hydrogen atom that's composed of a proton and an electron. Deuterium is hydrogen that has a neutron and a proton. So th this is called heavy water because it's twice the weight, essentially, of um, a standard hydrogen molecule. Um, so the water molecule itself is, is quite a bit heavier. And then there's also tritium, which we didn't talk about, which is the rarest form of hydrogen, which is three, uh, pardon me, two neutrons and a proton, and it is unstable and radioactive, and often it is a contaminant from nuclear power plants, but that wasn't subject to discussion. He believes that deuterium-depleted water is uh, significantly better than regular water, uh, something I need to look into more. He also believed that turpentine was uh, very useful. I always think of turpentine in the sense of painting, you know, cleaning paintbrushes, uh, but turpentine is a natural compound from pine trees, and uh, so it also worth investigating. Uh, extracts of mistletoe, and again, the coffee enema. And Tom also is a big believer that EMF is uh, dangerous and should be removed from people who have um, cancer. A another blessing that I have is that I have a nice circle of friends in Calgary, and many of them have invited me over for supper. They've been very careful to provide food that I can eat. Um, but I feel energized by the social connections that I'm getting. And I, I feel so grateful that my friends are just trying to do everything they can. And, you know, right now it's not a lot apart from being there for me and helping me have people around me so that I don't sit around and get depressed about my situation. I'd also like to thank all the people who listen to The Infectious Myth or who go on to The Infectious Myth website or on Twitter who sent me so many messages of sympathy and hope and have uh, suggested uh, so many things, uh, some of which I'm doing. And of course, this is where friends come in. They can go for a walk with me and of course, they're probably walking a lot slower than they normally do, but everybody's <coughs> so patient and, un and understanding, but it really helps to have somebody to go for a walk with or some other kind of exercise, understanding your limitations. So I, I appreciate that. Um, it, as a start on supplementation, I'm taking fairly high dose vitamins C and D and K2 and I'm taking an iron supplement because they told me my iron was low, and we'll see at the next um, test. I, I'd rather work on my iron through diet, 
And of course, if I use the keto diet, that shouldn't be a problem. But if I need to supplement for a while, I will, will do that. I need to do everything to get my body back in balance. And, um, you know, what I'm seeing for the first time in my life, really, is that different parts of my body are severely out of balance. Um, you know, with your bowels not working, it impacts other parts of your your body. Um, with the edema, of course, that's a systemic thing. Um, the liver has an impact on, on so much of your body. But luckily, at present, I'm not experiencing problems that are extended to other organs, such as my heart or lungs or, or kidney. But I, I understand that to bring myself back to a normal state, I have to gradually work on all of these different areas. And that even if I can eliminate the tumors, it may still be some time after that before my body is sort of completely uh, back in balance. And that balance may be a little bit different than it was uh, beforehand. My goal after I am past this is to slowly gain my strength. I'll probably do some very small hikes that I would have turned my nose up at before. Um, we generally measure hikes by the number of meters that you climb. So the first time I might climb 100 meters and then I will continue over time to try to push it with comfort up to 1,000 meters, which is about where I was uh, in my prime. I think I can do that, but of course, first, I have to get past this major health challenge. So that brings me to the last day, uh, or, or pardon me, that brings me to the day of taping of the podcast. And uh, today I received an email with the vegetarian diet. So now I have a really big choice to make. Do I go with a diet that is vegetarian with fish, or do I go with the keto diet, which is basically meat, um, you know, high in protein and fat, and carbohydrates would be taken from non-carbohydrate vegetables, because most vegetables have some carbohydrates, but I will not be eating french fries, perhaps for the rest of my life, um, bread, rice, you know, high carbohydrate vegetables will be off the, uh, the table. And, uh, you know, maybe after I'm completely past this, I can relax a little bit and, and have some carbohydrates, but I will probably continue to eat a carbohydrate-restricted diet if I go keto. The vegetarian diet does have carbohydrates in it. Um, uh, things like sprouted wheat bread, not refined carbohydrates, and brown rice, and quinoa, things like that. So this is the first major decision I have to make. And this is one of the things that cancer patients face is uh, irrevocable choices. If I make a choice to, to do a certain treatment or to go on a certain diet, I really only have one chance if it doesn't work out. Um, if it works out, then, you know, in the future, I can decide to relax. Um, but if I, for example, was to decide to throw myself on the mercy of the hospital and do whatever they wanted, and that causes me to decline and die, 
I don't have a chance to go back and do something more alternatively. But if I take <coughs> an alternative route and it doesn't work for me, um, then by the time I find that out, I might be in such bad shape that now um, even the mainstream doctors don't want to deal with me. So there's no guarantees. Maybe, maybe things can work out if the first attempt doesn't work. But I kind of feel like everything I'm doing is a major decision that you've got to stick with for a while. And uh, that if it doesn't work out, then, you know, you may be, uh, I may be in the position of focusing on the end of my life. But that's one thing I don't want to focus on. It's certainly something I focused on when I was first told that my liver was cancerous. I just accepted that that was a fatal diagnosis. And, um, you know, that I was, I was going to go home and make sure my will was up to date and decide what to do with my consulting company and, um, y you know, terminate my podcast and all of those things. But now I'm focusing on stabilizing my health and starting to improve it. If, if I can deal with my liver challenges, if I can get the liver back to normal, even if I have a, a tumor still in my body, I'm in much better shape. So the liver tumors are job number one, really. And the, I, I, I don't really believe that your attitude can do anything you want that all I have to do is be positive and think the right thoughts and my cancer will be cured. I don't believe in that. But I do believe that your attitude has a big impact. It not only has an impact on your health and your healing, but it also has an impact on what choices you make. I think far too many cancer patients give up and they go to the doctor, uh, the and they accept surgery, radiation, chemo without any questions. If that's what the doctor says is good, that's good. They don't realize the conflicts of interest that the doctor given, you know, cancer doctors generally have one tool. They're surgeons, they're radiologists, they're um, oncologists that work with chemotherapy. And so they're going to find, they're going to do the best they can with the tool that they have but if the tool that they have is not the most appropriate tool, they're still going to use it. And that's where you need to be in control. And of course, you can't be in control if you've given up. So I can't give, an up, give up. I want to be here for you for years to come to get back into doing podcasts on a variety of different topics. Please let me know what you think about this, this podcast. Um, you know, do you, do you want to hear more? about my journey. I'd also like to mention my Patreon campaign. At first I thought my Patreon campaign to develop the podcast and my book uh, had to be terminated because it, it was dishonest of me to receive money from people um, when I wasn't going to be able to complete it. But now I'm thinking differently. I'm thinking, well, maybe I can continue the podcast, and I can complete the book. But also, people have told me that people want to support me, and, and this is one way to do it. And I'm, I'm not asking you to go out and give me a lot of money. Um, I, I'm not in a, a situation where 
I'm in dire financial straits. But the, a small amount of money is a sign of support. Maybe, maybe in a better world, there would be better ways to support somebody. But your support financially through Patreon um, really means a lot. And I understand not everybody can do that, or you may not feel comfortable because um, you know, you're supporting my health as opposed to supporting my podcast, which is maybe what you wanted to do. And uh, so your messages of encouragement are hugely important as well, maybe more important at this point. So I think that's enough for today. It's probably going to shock some people. Many of you may already know this. I'm going to, I'm not going to say I'm going to fight because I don't want to see my health as a struggle. I don't want to use the war metaphor, but I want to try to find a way to bring my body back into balance. And that, that does mean eliminating some of the cancers. And so I want to investigate every way possible. And I will try to tell you as honestly as possible what decisions I make, why I make them, and then what happens with those decisions. And I guess everybody who's listening to this probably hopes for a good outcome, that uh, one day I will announce that I'm cancer-free and I can go back to uh, podcasts on a variety of issues. And everybody who listens can feel like they paid, played a small part in my recovery. You're already helping, and I appreciate that. Um, obviously, my local friends, those who can go for a walk with me, invite me to come over to eat so I don't have to cook, and um, who are so considerate about my comfort and what I'm eating and things like that, and most of all, my family. So thank you to everybody. Thank you for listening to episode 259 of The Infectious Myth. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion for a future guest, please email me at david.crow at infectiousmyth.com. Like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth. Join our discussion group at facebook.com slash group slash theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectiousmyth. Commit to monthly donations of any amount to infectiousmyth on patreon.com or liberatopay.com and a note the caveat that progress on a lot of my writing and the book is probably on hold for a while. Um, take that into consideration and don't donate unless you feel it's the right thing to do. Until next week, thank you and goodbye. Mm -hmm.